You're listening to the latest preaching from Brixham Community Church. Last time when I spoke to you, we were looking at an Old Testament passage and we saw from the New Testament that the stories in the Old Testament happened so they could be examples for us even today. And uh, I was quite encouraged by some of your comments last time um, with regard to that message. So I thought, well, let's do another Old Testament passage and uh, learn some similar lessons. Well, maybe not quite the same lessons this time. I want to talk to you this morning about saying no to God. There's a challenge. And uh, I'm basing that on what I've called Jonah and the Ninevites. Now, the Ninevites are the inhabitants of Nineveh, of course. And so I'm going to begin by reading uh, Jonah chapter 1 and then a couple of verses from chapter 2 and then chapter 3 as well. So this is a fairly well-known story, uh, but it reads fairly, fairly well, and it reminds you of the story just by reading it. So here we go. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, which is Jaffa today, where the oranges come from, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish in Spain to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us and we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. And they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What do you do? Where do you come from? What's your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. This terrified them and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what shall we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied. It will come calm. I know it's my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, O oh Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. 
chapter 2, verse 1. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. And the next verses, eight, uh, 2 to 9, tell you what he prayed. And then verse 10. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Jonah chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast. And all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Verse 10. And when God saw that they, what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. Well, what a story I want to start by asking how were the Ninevites saying no to God now the book of Jonah doesn't tell us very much about Nineveh's wickedness but the book of Nahum does and I think there are some very clear parallels with western civilization today the book of Nahum tells us that Nineveh was guilty of plotting against God exploitation of the helpless idolatry prostitution and witchcraft we'll just look at each of those brief passages from Nahum in turn Nahum chapter 1 verses 7 to 9 begins by saying the Lord is good a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. Now, I think it's good that it begins with that because we need to remember always that when God is angry with sin, it springs out of his goodness and the fact that he cares for those who trust in him. And the illustration I heard once, I think I was still a teenager when I heard it, but uh, if you have a loved one who is suffering with cancer, you hate the cancer in the measure that you love the person. Does that make sense to you? So it's out of your love for the person you hate what is killing them. And that's why God hates sin. It's because sin is actually bad for us. That God hates it because he loves us so much. So the Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into darkness. Whatever they plot against the Lord, he will bring to an end. Trouble will not come a second time. 
from you, O Nineveh, has one come forth who plots evil against the Lord and counsels of wickedness. I'm not going to try and apply some of these thoughts into modern society. I'm going to let you do that for yourself. But it does seem to me that whereas most people are ignoring God, there are actually people in our society who are plotting against him. And we need to be very, very much aware of that. There are people with ulterior motives who do what they do because they are determined to overthrow Christianity in our society. And of course, the militant atheists would be one group that come into that category. Another group would be those who do not like what God commands in his word and so they want to plot against the Lord because they don't like what the Bible actually says. It conflicts with their lifestyle. You can put your own application on those things. Then I notice the exploitation of the helpless in Nahum chapter 3 and verse 1. Just one verse here. Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. Oh boy. And you say, well, does that apply in Britain? Well, I can think of many victims just to mention those who are effectively slaves. William Wilberforce, a committed Christian, brought about the abolition of slavery in the British Dominions, and I think the bill was passed in 1833, if I remember my O-level history correctly. How wonderful that was. And we are proud of the fact that we got rid of slavery. But now it's come back in another form. Sex slaves. People who are enticed to come to this country on the basis that they're going to get a better life. And end up effectively as slaves. Victims. And what about the city of blood? full of lies, full of plunder. We've already had a reference to knife crime today in our service in our own town. Go to the big cities. How many kids are dying because of knife crime? A city full of blood, full of lies. Oh boy, are you not sick of the politicians these days? Do you really believe any of them? This is not a party political statement. But can you, do you really, really think that anyone is telling the truth anymore? Oh, we could go on. Idolatry, prostitution and witchcraft. Chapter 3 of Nahum, verse 4. All because of the wanton lust of a harlot alluring the mistress of sorceries who enslave nations by her prostitution and peoples by her witchcraft. Oh, wow. I notice that there has crept into our country 
a kind of ethos that is so tolerant that if we're not careful, we will be ensnared into the witchcraft and the idolatry of false religions. Now, this is not a plea for Brexit. I'm not motivated by that kind of thinking particularly. I'll leave you to draw your own conclusions, what you think about Brexit. Except that whatever happens, let's get it all over as quickly as possible. I think we get an amen for that. But yeah, just let me give you some examples. You, you can watch a, a, a TV soap. I, I confess I occasionally watch an occasional soap. And you, and you, get, you get people referring to karma. Oh, it's karma, a word, that, a word that's crept into our vocabulary. Its basis is Hinduism. It's far from a Christian thing. It's basically you reap in the next life what you've sown in this life. And it presupposes that there is another life here on earth, which is clearly not true. Oh, but we're sucked into it, so we start talking about karma. And one of the ones I've been a bit concerned about for years, and forgive me this, I'm even going to mention yoga here. Now, I'm not saying that some benefit cannot be done from the exercises that people do in yoga. And if you're doing that, I'm not going to say anything against that. But I do want to add a, wor a, word, of warning, a, a word of warning. Because actually, if you take that through to its deeper levels, you are getting into a form of meditation which is far from Christian. It basically had its roots in Buddhism. But all this stuff is coming in, coming in, creeping in. I just think we need to be very, very careful. Some of the forms of meditation that people get into are positively dangerous. Why, even in our own National Health Service, and I've experienced this, uh, some of this um, mindfulness stuff. Now, at a basic level, sitting and relaxing, probably quite good for you. Hey, but when we get to being told that we are to empty our minds, I want to tell you there is a Christian form of meditation, but it never involves emptying your mind. It involves filling your mind with the truths that are in God's word. So I've just picked out a few things at random here. All I'm trying to say is there is a danger that even in British society we will not be very far from the sins of Nineveh of old. <sighs> Plotting against God exploitation of the helpless, idolatry, prostitution, witchcraft. No wonder God said it would be destroyed. But it wasn't destroyed. 
Why? Now, actually, that raises a very interesting kind of question about the integrity of prophecy and what God says in his word. Because God tells Jonah to go and prophesy against Nineveh and to tell them that within six weeks, the city would be overturned, destroyed. And yet it doesn't happen. And this is a little bit of an aside, but I do want to say to you, sometimes because we believe in the prophetic gift, we believe that there's such a thing as genuine prophecy for today, and sometimes what we believe God has said to us doesn't come to pass. Wow. Well, there are various possibilities here. One is we got it wrong, or the person who prophesied got it wrong, you know, because a genuine gift from God comes through a human vessel. And we humans are fallible. That's why prophecy needs to be weighed carefully and judged. But there is another possibility here. There's a passage elsewhere in the Old Testament, and I've just forgotten exactly where it is. It's either Ezekiel or Jeremiah. Where God says very, very clearly that if he has spoken evil against a city or a nation and that nation repents, then God will withdraw the threat of destruction. Conversely, if he's promised good to a nation and that nation turns to sin, he will withdraw the promise of doing good. That's part of God's word. And all prophetic words have to, that has, have to bear that principle in mind. And sometimes it's not spelt out. It's there in God's word. It doesn't have to be spelt out every time. So there is implicit in Jonah's prophecy, Nineveh will be destroyed unless it repents. That's understood because of what God has said elsewhere in his word. Is that making sense to you? So that's just a little aside on why some prophecy doesn't get fulfilled. It's not the only reason, by the way, but it's one possible one. So what's the reason here? Why wasn't Nineveh destroyed? Well, chapter 3, verse 5 tells us why. Because Nineveh believed and repented. The Ninevites believed God, they declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. The other reason, chapter 3, verse 10, because God had compassion on them. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, that's repentance, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. As I said a few minutes ago, God's anger at sin is because of his love. And we really, really need to understand that. God will forgive you if you turn from your sin. God loves you. He has compassion on you. You could be as sinful as Nineveh and God will forgive you if you will believe 
and repent. It's the message of the New Testament. Repent and believe the good news. The choice is yours. So now let's move on because we've been talking about the Ninevites saying no to God. <laughs> but who was Jonah? And how was he saying no to God? Well, as we read, he was the son of Amittai, but he's also mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 14 and verse 25. And we know that he prophesied during the reign of Jeroboam II, the king of Israel, from 793 to 753 BC. So he's a historical figure. Not just a story. This is a story that actually happened to an actual person sometime between those dates. It means that he lived at the same time as the prophet Elisha. And he might even have been a member of Elisha's school of the prophets. So what happened? How did he say no to God? Well, God spoke to Jonah. Jonah didn't like what God told him to do. Why? Well, one possibility was he was scared. I mean, this city, Nineveh, was an evil city. Who wants to go and preach to them? Could be a bit risky. Now, the Bible doesn't actually say that, but it is a possibility. But what the Bible does make clear is that Jonah didn't want the Ninevites to repent and be forgiven. You see, they were so wicked. They were so evil. They weren't God's people. And if they repent, God will have compassion on them. You see, Jonah understood that God is a God of love, that God cares about people. And he didn't want them to repent. He didn't want them to be saved. What a terrible thing. He thought they might repent and God might forgive them. So he ran in the opposite direction. I mean, very much the opposite direction. Nineveh is east from where he was, and Spain is west. Completely the opposite direction. Running away from God. Part of my purpose in preaching this message is to ask you the question, is there some area in which you're running away from God? I'm talking mainly to Christians. Let me just say, though, if you've never given your life to Jesus, if you wouldn't really describe yourself as a Christian, there's a sense in which you are undoubtedly saying no to God. You are saying no to God's great offer of mercy. Do you know that Jesus came and died on the cross to save you? so that your sins could be forgiven. And by simply ignoring that and doing nothing about that, you are saying no to the greatest gift that anyone has ever given or ever will give to someone else. God gave his son so that you might have eternal life. 
Saying no to God has serious consequences. Those who do not believe, said Jesus, are condemned already because they do not believe on the name of the only Son of God. Serious thing to say no to God. But even as Christians, are there areas where I'm saying no to God? Are there areas in your life where you are saying no to God? We'll come back to that right at the end. But what can we learn in general from this whole story? Seven things all very quickly. Firstly, I want to tell you, God has a plan for your life. Chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. Go. It's an exciting thing to find out what God's purpose is for your life. And I don't care how old you are, or indeed how young you are, but it's pretty obvious when you're young. Oh yes, young people want to know. What am I going to do with my life? Yeah, well I'm 80 and I'm asking, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? Absolutely. What's God's purpose for us? It's exciting. God has a plan for every single one of you, no matter what your age or, can I say it, your physical condition. God has a purpose. That's exciting. Second thing we learn is that God gives you a choice about it. Chapter 1, verse 3. Jonah ran away. See, God doesn't force you. You can say no. It's very stupid to say no. Jonah did say no, but he ended up in Nineveh anyway. Just a rather uncomfortable method of getting there, if you remember what happened. Who wants to be swallowed by a fish and vomited out again? But God gives you a choice about it. Third thing I notice in this story, chapter 1, verse 4, is that God's very persistent. When Jonah said, no, I'm not going east, I'm going west. I'm not going to do what God wants me to do because I don't want the Ninevites to repent and be forgiven. They don't deserve it. God could have said, all right, that's it. I'll find somebody else to do it. And I think maybe there are times when God does just that. You won't do it, he'll find somebody else to do it. You just miss the blessing of being used by God. But God's very persistent. The Lord sent a great wind. <laughs> I love it. And as a result of this wind, you see, God is so determined to get Jonah back on track that he does things which could quite easily affect and indeed did affect other people. The sailors were impacted considerably by Jonah's disobedience. And ultimately so were Nineveh. God's very persistent. 
Number four, God's in charge of circumstances. Even the sailors somehow understood this. They cast lots. I'm not suggesting we should do that today, but that in the Old Testament was a valid way of determining what you believed God was saying to you. And they cast lots. Even in the New Testament, they did that in Acts chapter 1. Why? Because the understanding was quite simply that God is in charge of everything. Even what happens in the lottery. Ooh. I'm not recommending the lottery, by the way. I just say in passing why I'm not recommending it. Um, in, in, the Bible talks about various ways in which you can gain money, but it never recommends any form of gambling. And gambling is a very, very serious addiction for many, many people. And I believe as Christians we should, just speaking my personal view here, we should avoid all forms of it as a testimony against any form of gambling. But, so I wasn't talking about that when I said lottery. That's all I wanted to say. God's in charge of circumstances. You know, it's, that's frightfully hard to believe sometimes when you are going through great personal difficulty. Very hard. Eileen and I find it quite hard to come to terms, even after three years in our present situation, quite hard to come to terms with the fact that God is in charge of all circumstances. But he is. I've got to believe it. And your circumstances, whatever they are, God's in charge. A loving God is in charge. It may not look very loving at the moment. But I know his love because he sent Jesus to die for me. And if he sent Jesus to die for me, he, he only wants what's best for me. So whatever he's allowed to happen, he still loves me. Still loves you. Number five. If you go astray and repent, God can put you back on track. And of course, that's exactly what happens with Jonah. He says in verse 12, I know it's my fault. And in verse 17, it says, the Lord provided when Jonah acknowledged that it was his fault, that he was doing the wrong thing, then God provided a way for him to do the right thing. It was a pretty extraordinary way of doing it. And maybe one might say, don't be surprised at the extraordinary methods God uses in getting you where he wants you. Even inside a fish. No matter where you are, you can never get away from God. And again, even inside a fish. Remember what the psalmist said in Psalm 139, where shall I flee from your presence? Wherever I go, you're there. God is there. And finally, what's the purpose of all this? The salvation 
of sinners. Chapter 3, verse 10 of Jonah, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and he did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. Of course, if they hadn't repented, the destruction would have happened, despite the word of Jonah. If we don't repent, we will perish. Do you remember that story? I think it's the beginning of Luke 13, where it talks about the, uh, the people who asked the questions, uh, were those people who, upon whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, were they worse sinners than all the other people? And Jesus said, no. And I tell you this, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Why did he say that? Because he loves us. He's warning us of the danger. Sin separates from God. Unless sin is dealt with, we perish. That's why Jesus died for us. As I've said, God hates sin, but he loves sinners. Jonah, like Israel in general, had forgotten that it was their mission to share God's love with others. What had God said to Abraham, if you like, the founder of the Jewish nation? What had God said to him in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3? All people, peoples on earth will be blessed through you. It was God's purpose for Israel that they should be blessed in order to be a blessing. In order to reach out. And sadly, ultimately, Israel failed in that. But God has raised up a people for himself. It's nothing to do with nationality or ethnicity. It's to do with having the same kind of faith that Father Abraham had. Abraham believed God and it was credited for him, to him as righteousness. And the New Testament tells us that whether we're Jews or Gentiles, if we have believed in Jesus and the fact that he died for our sins, rose again, offers us eternal life in heaven. We are God's people. We're part of that new Israel, as it were. And therefore, we the church have the responsibility that Israel originally had to be a blessing to all peoples. That's worldwide. We have a responsibility. I wonder if we're in danger of doing the same as Jonah. Oh, maybe.
Maybe, maybe Jonah thought the Ninevites wouldn't believe even if he went, so it was a waste of time. Hmm. Maybe it wasn't that he just hated them so much. And maybe you sometimes hold back from telling people about Jesus because you think they'll not listen. It'd be a waste of my energy, waste of my breath, waste of my time. That's one area in which you, as a Christian, might be saying no to God. And my final question is, something I mentioned at the beginning of this section, are there other areas in your life where you're saying no to God? I'll just think of a couple. You're a born-again Christian. Let me ask you this question. Have you been baptised as a believer by immersion in water? Because that's what Jesus commands. And if you haven't, and you're refusing to, I say it lovingly, you're saying no to God on that specific point. Sorry to be so blunt about it, but that's simply the fact. Are you saying no to God? Or maybe in the area of finance. Wow. Are we giving what we should be giving to the church? Personally, I believe that the minimum a Christian should give is a tenth. If they could give a tenth under the law of the Old Testament, how much more should we give under grace? I don't see it as a legalistic thing. Just, wow. So maybe you're saying no to God in that area. I don't know. I've just plucked a couple of things out of the air there. And maybe you know there are other things. And if you're honest, you're saying... No, Lord, I'm not ready for that. No, I'm not. When it's time, you were. Let's pray together. Lord, if we're honest, there's a little bit of Jonah in all of us. There might even be a little bit of Nineveh in all of us, if we're really, really honest. But we are so grateful for your love and your compassion that you are not willing that any of us should perish, but that we should all come to repentance, that we should all know your forgiveness and to make that possible Jesus came and died to save us. Lord, forgive us that we sometimes say no to you. Some perhaps have a persistent attitude of no to God. And others of us, maybe, just from time to time say no when we should be saying yes. Holy Spirit, I ask you quite simply, 
touch people's hearts so that they may realize where they are saying no, where they should be saying yes. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I just finished by saying, if you have been saying no to God in that you've never become a Christian, and this morning you'd like to say, actually, it's time I said yes. Do have a word with me or someone afterwards. We'll be happy to show you how to say yes in that very, very important matter. God bless you. Thanks for listening. For more information, visit Brixham.Church.